Let's start again. Growing old is awful. I think I've told you guys this before. I've never felt homicidal, particularly in my life. But I would like to get the guy who said, these are our golden years, and shoot him. <laughs> shoot him. And shoot him again. Pray for me, please. <laughs> Let's see, do we, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. We wouldn't be here without you. It's amazing. You know, um, we suffer. People around us suffer. But at least we're here. We're living and existing and aware of this great world that we have. Um, it's amazing that we're alive at all because we couldn't be here. But we are, and we're only here because of you. Um, that, that, we're, that we have a consciousness to be aware of something as extraordinary as our universe. It's only because of you. So in some sense, we're connected with you that we could see something that extraordinary when nobody else in creation can. So for our life from you and in you, um, thank you more than we can say. For your presence with us through the day and now for this time together, I ask a special blessing on what we're doing. So many of these works are taking us to the center of our faith and, and making clear why we have it, why it's so important for us. I ask a special blessing um, of courage mostly courage and a spirit of humility that we can go to our world and make a defense of our faith. Not in rage, not in anger, not defensively, in courage, in love with you so that those who don't see you or who reject you uh, may have a better reason for um, looking into our faith than they have now. For all that we've been doing together, I offer special thanks. Um, I ask a special prayer for Bob's friend. Bob, I'm sorry. Jack. Um, and his family and friends. Um, um, be with all of them. Um, my hope is always, it's the prayer that, we, that we've said so often, that these ordeals that we experience draw us closer to you. Not to get angry. My goodness, um, these are not your faults. They're ours and our worlds. It's our fall, sickness and illness and everything else. Be with Jack and his friends and um, be with Bob in the goodness of his heart that he offers prayers and carries them. Connie's not here, so Connie, if you hear this eventually, if you get to this tape, know that we are praying for you. Um, um, hmm. and Keith be safe on your journey um, know that we carry you you've been so much a part of this I ask a special prayer too for Melody um, and her family um, for Alexis and Heather and the other people Chuck and Lori are away um, um, watch over us all surround us with your protection please um, I ask for a special grace. Say your name again. Nick. Nick. 
Um, he's early in his career. Um, what to say, God, that somebody's on the threshold of offering their whole life. It's an example for all of us that we should be doing the same, whatever we're doing. So, um, in everything that happens to him, help him to grow in his love of you, to be willing to put himself away completely for whatever it is you will ask of him. Um, for Mary and her son, David, um, <laughs> Catholic families struggle, and part of the reason is that kids grew up in Catholic families carry so much than kids in other groups. They're closer to secular kids because they're a degree of holiness, so things mean more, they have so much more to rebel against. Um, that he said what he did to his mom is a sign of Mary's presence in him. You know, that something's holding him, so be with him, protect him, please, genuinely protect him. Um, help open his eyes and his hearts. Give marriage the courage to risk. To, um, whatever she does, even if it's hard, if it's an expression of tough love, let it be in a spirit of charity. Let her heart, let her son know if she does something hard that he may not like. However uh, she does it, help her to do it in a spirit of love and help him to see that. Um, I offer um, prayers for the rest of us, whatever we're holding in our hearts, because I know all of us do. Um, and everything that's going on, help us to always give our wills to what you're asking and to be glad, grateful for all that we have. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Mike, it feels like there's an echo. Melody says, something going on? I don't know what that is. Um, I'm going to do one of the Renati poems again, just to keep with him, and um, and then and yeah, and then I've got a just a note about the work we're doing. You remember that most of these poems, for those of you who don't know Renati, he was a Hungarian poet who lived during the occupation of Germany, and really an important poet. Um, he spent his life writing poetry. Um, um, most of his poetry he wrote um, in the context of a Holocaust. Um, you know, the Jews were being deported and um, executed at Auschwitz, and the war was underway. Um, he was taken into a mining camp and forced into labor um, in a copper mine to, to provide the Germans with um, metal for their armaments. And finally, he and a large group of other men were, um, um, were put in a forced march. And because they were being starved, they gradually f fell off in groups and the Germans would execute them. So in the poems that we've been reading, they, they're actually written during that forced march. And they're called postcards. <laughs> it's a little bit like postcards from the dead. Um, he's writing them as he's watching his um, friends be executed. 
groups of them would be falling down out of starvation and then Germans would put a gun to their heads and shoot them and bury them. In, the, in, these, in these postcard poems that we have here, they were in Rodnati's um, jacket when they exhumed the bodies, when they uncovered the graves. I think his wife took, took part in that um, unburying and she went to her husband's clothes and found these poems. So he wrote right up to the last moment of death. And you know, because I've read the, the, the poems, Foamy Sky, um, one of the reasons I wanted to read these, I'm going to get to it in a minute and try to underscore it. The moon sways on a foamy sky, how strange that I'm alive. A bland, efficient death searches this age. I mean, because he, everybody, everybody should pay close attention to this. One of, one of the things that defines the modern world, and we saw that certainly in uh, Fellowship of the Ring, is the love of machinery because people associate machinery with power. You know, a, a machine doesn't think, it just does. And it can be efficient, so it's it can be inhuman. So he describes this efficient death in a foamy sky. It's like the atmosphere has been soaked with um, chemicals because they've been living in gunfire with smoke and everything. We live in a, um, a bourgeois world, which in some ways should be sickening. And it's and some, it's too false. I mean, we're so removed from the realities of um, immigrations, exiles, you know, people sent off in hordes, um, uprooted from their homes, starved in thousands and thousands. He's writing from that kind of an experience, and um, we read Foamy Sky, and I read the first postcard. This is the second and third. Um, so they are exact experiences of something going on. And by the way, to underscore that, let's put it that way. Doc, what was that movie? It was not Enemy at the Gates, but the Enemy at the Gates of the Holocaust in Africa, the, the ethnic cleansing? Enemy? There's a movie um, about the ethnic cleansing in Africa. It's, um, it's stunning. But it, it, it shows tr um, people, tribes at war with each other and killing each other, some of the barbaric tribes. And some of the Westerners, priests, who went there to help out, not knowing what they'd be facing, are calling back to the West for help, and the West keeps <laughs> putting them off, you know, delaying in the United Nations, and they're making calls, and what, you, what you're watching is the same thing that happened with um, Hitler in the Second World War. It's everybody getting excuses. Nobody wants to get into war. People are dying, hundreds of thousands. It's ethnic cleansing. They're just... Um, and this one particular film... Tears of the Sun, isn't it? Huh? Tears of the Sun? No. Is it Hotel Rwanda? That's the other movie that was made on it, that movie. But it's not that movie. It's called something like The Enemy of the Gates. And I'm missing the, but it's, it's, it's exactly the same experience, but it's told from within the compound, from the perspective of the Catholic priest, and the families that he was trying to save, and the butchering that took place. But the point of bringing it up right now is they were making all these cold calls to the West, to the United Nations, and they were just putting them off. With all these excuses, when all these people were being, but literally butchered, with machetes and... So um, here we've got Renati in a force march to Auschwitz when the West is protecting its comfort and security, 
while the Jews were being marched to ovens. Um, and remember when I told you um, he was born in a Jewish family and converted to Catholicism late in his life with his wife. Um, but when he was born, he identified, he said through his life, he identified himself with Cain. He grew up very, very Jewish, very sensitive to ethnic things. Um, he identified with Cain because his brother died in childbirth and his mother died in giving birth to him. So he grew up with sort of a guilt that he was alive, you know, when his brother didn't make it and his mom didn't either. So he had that kind of keen sensitivity. So he brought that kind of sensitivity to the poetry he wrote. And the poems that we've been reading are from these last years of experience when Germany had occupied Hungary and were deporting Jews. Even though at this point he's not Jewish. Well, he's Jewish, but he's Catholic. So, postcards, um, um, Rudnati. At nine kilometers, the pall of burning Hayrick homestead farm. At the field's edge, the peasants silent smoking pipes against the fear of harm. Here, a lake ruffled only by the step of a tiny shepherdess, while a white cloud is what the ruffled sheep drink in their lowliness. I hope everybody is aware that part of the power of a poem like this, which seems to say nothing, he's going to die, people are dying, but the world is going on. There's a shepherdess, you know, farmers doing what they do. Um, the Germans are marching the Jews by. Every, the world's going on. And these people are being marched off to be executed. So part of the power comes from the, fact, the discrepancy between the men who are going to lose their lives pretty directly and the fact that the world goes on. People just preoccupied in what they're doing. Postcard three. The oxen drool saliva mixed with blood. Each one of us is urinating blood. The squad stands about in knots, stinking mad. Death hideous is blowing overhead. Four, I fell beside him and his corpse turned over tight already as a snapping string, shot in the neck. And that's how you'll end too, I whispered to myself. Lie still, no moving. He's trying to protect himself. Now patience flowers in death. Then I could hear der Sprink noch auf, above and very near. Blood mixed with mud was drying in my ear. The German was saying of the guy that they just shot, he's still, he's still twitching, he's still alive. So he probably needed to put another bullet in him. You'll understand if you don't want to come again. Um, here, before, I should have included these in my prayers, but it was just, um, I say a special prayer right now before we start. Um, I don't follow the online mechanics, I don't know that stuff, but I know that there's a following and it's increased. People all over the world come into this because it's available and I don't know what the numbers are, but I want to say just a special prayer for those who are following, who are not present, and who don't come online virtually. So I'm just going to name some people and ask that you hold those names in your heart, say a prayer for them. These are people who just pick up and 
you know, and been reading, and some of them have been following for some time. Maddie, Julie, uh, Margarita, Linda, um, Alexander, Lee, Mohammed, Mark and his kids. Mark's an old friend. Um, Mirazul, David and Kay, we know. We haven't seen them for a while. I hope they're doing well. Melissa, um, Kyle, and Alexis, whom we haven't seen for a while. Anyway, just periodically, I think I'm going to just go down a list and to see who's following and let them know, even though they're not a part virtually of the interacting here, that that somebody's looking out for them, okay? Okay, I've got um, business um, thoughts to offer you before we start on Scarlet Letter. Um, next week, we'll finish Scarlet Letter, and I'm going to see if we can't cover Scarlet Letter in the first half of our class, and then I'm going to give some brief reflections on um, Brothers Karamazov. We'll take a week off. So next week will be our last week on Scarlet Letter. We'll take a week off, and then we'll start Brothers Karamazov. But I want to offer just some brief overview, the sort of way I do in all works, just to get you started with your thinking. <laughs> Connie's not here. I'm sorry she isn't because I would, I would just dump all over her head. I'm sure you got my email. Because last time we met and I showed you the book, Connie gasped. <laughs> and if you got my email, you know I said to Connie, that's only the first volume, Connie. <laughs> it's a thick book. It's as thick as Moby Dick. I don't think it's any longer. Moby Dick writing is a little bit smaller. It's a, but it's about, I don't know the length, but it's, it's, it's not a short book. It's an extraordinary book. If I were to single out two books, if I had to die in the next couple of weeks and say, I want us to have read these two works, it would have been Moby Dick and Brothers. You know, we started with the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, we've done Dante, we, did, we went through Shakespeare, we, but we've entered the modern world now. You know, we did the, we did, um, the Gospels and Revelation, and once we came back, we came back to the modern world. One of the reasons I'm reading the Renati poems is because I want everybody to realize we've entered a world that's unlike any other world that I know of from my experiences, and they're somewhat, they're not small, um, in my reading of history and literature. I, I, don't think, I don't think a world, the world that we live in has any parallel. I can't find it. Um, we live in a world that, that exists after Christ came, we're the first world that has lived after Christ came that's denied him. So the pre-Christian world believed in gods. All of them. They were all God-centered. The Olympian gods for Homer, the Roman gods. The medieval world was defined by Christ. It was a theocentric world. It was God-centered. We're the first world that has tried um, to live to create a world sufficient to itself and deny God. We're the first world that is trying to live a completely secularized life in the belief that all religion can, can coexist. So Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam can all exist in the same world and get along. So we're trying to do something that's never been done before, but, but the cost of it is the denial of God. Okay? So we've entered the modern world, 
And I'm saying that this world is different from any we've looked at so far in all of our reading. We, we're stepping into a very different world. Um, I'm going to give you some figures. It's um, taken from a, a friend that I, a co-teacher that I worked with years ago. That will give you the deaths of people in modern nations that will stagger you. Just absolutely stagger you. It will give you some sense that, that we don't, I mean the news will not print this stuff because everything about the news is to promote our world and say look how good it is. But the number of deaths of people who have been exterminated or died or killed in, in modern nations will stagger you. Add to those, and he doesn't add that, and I'm sorry he doesn't do that, the number of deaths from abortion and we are living, we are living in a holocaust that makes the German Holocaust in the Second World War look like nothing. And I hesitate to say that because it was awful for the Jews to be exterminated like that. Um, but we're living in a very different kind of world. And the way we present ourselves to the world is that we're the best educated, the most educated, the most civil nation that's ever existed in the world. And yet we've got all these things um, covered up. I'll give you the figures next week. But the point I'm making now is that we've entered the modern world. And so everything we do from here on out is going to be in that context. So um, however, <laughs> however nice the Iliad was when we read it, and you know that you couldn't read two pages without Homer describing a spear going through some guy's skull, eyeballs dangling on a spear, the guts spilling out of somebody, being dragged along by an axle wheel, or, you know, I mean, it was just page after page after violence. It's going to make Homer look sentimental. Um, and yet we live in a bourgeois world whose ideals are heavenly. One of the short stories we're going to read by Hemingway is called A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. Remember that title, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. What's that an analogy of? A clean, it's going to be a bar. It's from Hemingway. He knew exactly what he was doing. A what's, what's a clean, a bar? It's where everybody goes to comfort. If you remember Cheers. But what's a clean, well-lighted place an analogy of? Heaven. Who said that? Yeah, good for you. Heaven. Heaven. Because that's the best the world can offer. We live in a bourgeois world that's trying to replace heaven to make everything to make us as comfortable and as pleasant and as security free, free from problems as possible. But the cost of it is covered up and buried and it's awful. So we've entered a, a new world. It's unlike anything we've ever seen before. And the reading that we've been doing is on the threshold of that world. Okay? Melville exposed it. I mean, we've done it already. Melville lays bare what I think are fundamental evils at the heart of the Protestant world. We've already gone through it. I'm not. Um, Hawthorne's going to uncover some of that here. Dostoevsky is going to look at it from a different perspective. We're going to get it from Russia when Russia's on the verge of changing from old holy mother Russia, this holy Christian country, on the verge of communism. The Enlightenment world is going to take Russia into a communistic world, a socialist, a, that is an absolutely secularized world. 
So all the works that we're reading are placing us right at that threshold. We're about to enter the world that we've been in now for a century. Okay? So Moby Dick, Hawthorne, Dostoevsky. We'll take a break. Um, what I'd like to do at that break, because we've talked about having a dinner movie night again. I don't know if you want to bring um, a dinner night, a movie night again. How many of you have seen the movie Born Free? About the lioness? Oh, really? I've been thinking about showing that movie because I was trying to think of a good movie. I may show that movie and have a dinner. We'll have a movie dinner night. We'll, I don't know what the movie will be, but I'm thinking about that one for a number of reasons. It's, but um, We'll have a dinner movie night again, okay? We'll take a break for a couple of weeks, and then we're going to start into the modern world, our modern world itself. Not the threshold, but the modern world. We'll do Flanner O'Connor's the, the Violent Bared Away. Listen to that title, The Violent Bared Away. We'll do Hemingway, um, The Old Man on the Sea. We'll do Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral, which will be the only work on martyrdom that we will have read together. I think it's one of the finest works on martyrdom that I know. I mean, it, because it's not about it's not about a martyr, you know, like philosophy or history. It's not about we enter into Thomas Beckett his interior in the struggles that he has to go through in facing martyrdom, whether he's genuinely a martyr or not. To watch a tortured soul have to struggle with the question of martyrdom, whether what he's doing is really self-interested or selfish. It's one of, one of Eliot's greatest works. So, um, Violent Bared Away, O'Connor, Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral, um, um, Hemingway's Old Man of the Sea, a very short, very short work. I think it's his best work by far. Um, um, Faulkner said of that work that Hemingway finally discovered God. And there's nothing explicit about God in that work. We'll read a handful of short stories by Flannery O'Connor, Eudora Welty, Hemingway Faulkner. Just be a handful of stories. They'll all be short. Um, but I think they're the best shorts, among the best short stories in the last hundred years. So, And then we will do Faulkner's um, Go Down Moses, which is Faulkner's, I've told you, it's Faulkner's answer to Moby Dick. Moby Dick is about the outcast one. It's Ishmael. Remember, Sarah gave um, um, Abraham over to uh, Hagar to have a child because she couldn't. And the, the product of that was Ishmael, the outcast, and sent him away. God watched out for him. And by the way, that's the beginning of Islam. That outcast, Ishmael, is the beginning of Islam. And God makes it clear he's watching out for that man. And we know that Islam denies Christ's divinity. And in, the, in Scripture it says anybody who denies him is gone. So we're going to be dealing with an interesting paradox when we re read Faulkner. But Faulkner said of Moby Dick, he wished he'd written it. He thought it was one of the greatest books ever written. Um, his response to that is, go down Moses, it's the chosen one, Ike. It'll be about Isaac. And I don't want to give that away because I, it's, it's a very short novel. It's a collection, actually, it's a collection of short stories that he put together because he saw they were all about the same thing. But that's the chosen one. And, and C.S. Lewis's Two Faces. 
Before we get to tube, so the end of it would be, Till We Have Faces, I think, is the best thing that C.S. Lewis ever did. It's his reworking of the Cupid Psyche myth. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. It's a powerful story. and very short. So the last two works that I want to end on are Till We Have Faces and T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets, which I think are the greatest poems of the 20th century. So we're going to end on a positive note. Um, but I thought to... <laughs> How do I say this? To test your mettle, what can I say? God. Because <laughs> I don't know that there's any delicate way I can put this. Because I'm so aware of how bourgeois our culture is and its effect on us and the, t the tests that it puts us in to compromise our integrities, you know, to follow Christ. To, to make comfort and security and eating and food and... But I thought we'd end with some films dealing with real violence. <laughs> so I thought, I thought about doing a film called um, Man on Fire. If any of you have seen it, you know it's a pretty violent film. I think it's an excellent film. A film that's oriental um, called um, Man from Nowhere which is very violent. Suzanne has been making faces at me since I recommended it. It's a, it's a pretty violent film. And um, a film, I'm not, I, we haven't seen it so, so this is tentative. When I saw Father last, he asked me if I'd seen the film called Nefarious, which is about a, um, it's about a, a modern secular, I think, sort of psychologist who visits this guy in jail who claims that he's possessed. So you can imagine a modern psychologist dealing with a guy who claims he's, who would want to give all these psychological reasons to explain away this possession. But as he meets with the guys in all these counters, he comes to believe in demonic possession. So I haven't watched it yet, but Father urged it on me. Have you seen it? Yeah. <laughs> Father urged it on me, and even if, you, even if you don't know that of me, I've tried to be careful of you. So I'm holding off these violent films until the end. Suzanne laughs at me. Um, so, Man on Fire, A Man from Nowhere, and <laughs> we've got to watch Nefarious and see. So it'll be a month. If you thought you were scared when somebody told you stories when you were a youngster in bed. Anyway, that's my thinking. Because I, I don't want to leave this class because I'm getting to the end of it. This will be it for us. We're coming to the end. I don't want to leave this class with any feeling that I've sentimentalized it or made it easy for you guys. <laughs> and I think you know by now, because we've been together long enough, how, how strong my feelings are in that direction. Flannery O'Connor's work, every one, almost every one of her stories deals with violence. Almost every one of them. It's not graphic. It's not explained. But she's showing that any time grace enters this world, any time, it's going to meet with opposition and it's going to cause violence. It's what's called grotesque comedy. The best image that I have of it is gargoyles. The, where violence and grace meet, there's no way we can keep our calm bourgeois faces. Our faces are going to twist. And you know, as much as we want to seem cool and collected and with it and in control, that when we deal with violence, it, it, it is an undoing experience. It shakes us to our core.
And however much we care about seeming to seem in control or with it or knowledgeable or um, it's a it's a battle. That's the meeting ground between grace and evil. So my proposal right now is to do the works that I'm suggesting. I'll, I'll send you a reading list and um, and then have a month of three movies. They're not going to be easy to watch. It'd be nice if we could get some meals around them and huh? We're going to need a lot of it. <laughs> and then we'll end with Two We Have Faces and The Four Quartets, which I think are the most extraordinary pieces of poetry. They're not easy to read, so it's going to take some doing. Anyway, that's my thought. If you have strong objections, hold them. Write to me an email so I know, you know, if you really give me your thoughts on this, I'd really, I'd really like to hear from, from you guys what your response is, okay? Um, but, Mike, yeah. Do you have a recommended edition for Brothers Karamazov? Yeah, it's the one I sent. I sent out an email with it. I'll send it out again. Sorry. I've sent it out. Um, um, if you get the older edition, I think it's something like $40, but it, it's got a newer cover, but it's the same edition. I think it's $14, which is a reasonable, uh, because whatever, whatever edition you get, it's going to be $15. It's a huge book. But it's, it's, I sent it out, I'll send it out again. Um, and my suggestion is, next week we finish um, our letter, we have a week off, start Brothers. And remember the work that we've done on Manipian satire. Manipian satire. Manipian satire takes a very familiar thing, like a dog. Remember the movie Dog? It'll take a very familiar thing like a dog, but it'll handle it in a way that makes us look at everything else in the world differently. It's a way of taking the familiar and twisting it so we can't take things for granted anymore. When we start Brothers Karamazov, we're going to find ourselves in the middle of a Russian world that has been in, infiltrated by all these European Enlightenment ideals and they're tearing Russia apart. It, when you're in the midst of a world like that, what do you do? I'm asking seriously, to what do you turn? The old values don't hold anymore. If you're looking for Christian truths and they're all being upended, to what do you turn for help? Where do you go for guidance? How, where can you go to say, am I, am I, am, is what I'm doing okay or not? You know, if you're embarking on a serious a calling, to what do you turn? Um, when the standards of behavior don't apply anymore, decorum, propriety, they're out a window. So when you're in the midst of a change like that, and that was the world of Moby Dick, that's partly um, Hawthorne's world, where do you go? What do you, to what do you look for guidance, help? So in Brothers Karamazov, we're in a book that's on the threshold of an old world passing away, a Christian world, and a new world about to begin. It's going to be socialism and communism. So along with Moby Dick, it's, it's in some ways, it belong, it, it and Moby Dick are in some ways two of the greatest modern worlds because they're on that threshold shouldiness, a world passing and another world coming and who we are today, what's it, where are we, what it's done, okay? So get an early start.
Okay? Start reading it. Any questions about the reading list or, or my proposal to do some violent movies? I saw thumbs up from a couple, I saw thumbs up from a couple of you, I'm actually glad. Somebody, anybody, questions or? Wives have to endure for husbands. I thought about doing the movie Platoon, which I think, I, when we watched that when we were younger, I had our kids, because I, I think there's something sacramental. I'm not, I'm not using the word, I'm not, I think, exaggerating. Hmm? Is that right? Oh, God, what a way to kill a movie. Anyway, there's something extraordinary going on there. It's one of the most important self-revelations about America. And it's, it's a war movie, so there's killing and violence. And it's, it's not gratuitous violence, it's war. But what happens is it, um, is it closes on a kind of self-revelation that's just amazing. But I thought that was too much. Three's enough. So, okay. No questions or objections? Okay. Um, if you look at our notes, at the end of the notes, um, I've asked a serious question. You know that one of the major themes of Scarlet Letter is reading that um, what Hawthorne is dealing with is a founding generation um, um, that's set out from Europe to found a new country under God um, to create a, a light, a beacon on a hill. And um, it, um, it based its identity on two of the major Reformation doctrines. Um, sola Fidea and Sola Scriptura, faith alone, scripture alone. And what Hawthorne shows us is that those two doctrines shape the way people read. That the, 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 the practical effect of those two, dog, those two dogmas was to um, encourage people to look at the world in black-white terms. It's something we see today in America, it's present in Catholics, it's, um, but it's, in a sense, it dominates a, or a Protestant world because that's the way they see the world, according to those beliefs. According to those beliefs, some people, so the major doctrines were um, the inefficacy of good works, um, um, predestination, um, and the sola fidei and sola scriptura, that those were the basic tenets of the Reformation. And what Hawthorne shows us at the beginning is how those beliefs shape the way people read. So they tend to read things in terms of black-whites. So if somebody in that Christian community saw somebody commit a sin, that sin would be evidence of that person's damnation. That's 
highlighted, underscored in everything that goes on with Hector. She's pregnant. She hasn't. She has an illegitimate child. We don't know who the father is in the beginning. And everybody is quick to condemn her. In the very first scene, remember, we, sh we saw those five women, one of whom was pregnant, who was charitable. But the other four were just mean, just vindictive women. One of them wanted to have a brand, an A burned into Esther's head. Um, one of them wanted her dead. And um, all of them felt that they had a basis for their judgments in Scripture. And the irony is that we know from Scripture that one of the most famous passages in the Bible is the, um, the woman caught in adultery. You know, the men are going to come out and stone her. And, but they seem to have no sense of that. Remember we saw some of the characters in Moby Dick. Remember um, Stubbs' reading of Job? <laughs> um, which is a complete misreading of Job. So we're watching characters whose whole way of belief is based on the Bible, who misread the Bible and who misread the world. They're quick to judge, they're quick to find faults, there's a lack of charity. I've been suggesting from the beginning that what Hawthorne is doing in an amazing way is refounding America. I know that's got to sound like an exaggeration, but to me it's not. Remember he said in the, in the Custom House that he was ashamed of what his um, ancestors did, that they committed these awful crimes, and that he saw himself as attempting to redeem their crimes. So the writing of the Scarlet Letter is his attempt to introduce into the founding a spirit that the founding lacked. It's a spirit of charity and um, it's a spirit of a different way of reading the world. So instead of judging people according to outward appearances, we're learning to see that most people who judge by outward appearances read incorrectly. They have flawed ways of reading. And what we see from Hawthorne's treatment of them in the way that he presents characters is he's showing a side of people, the interior side, that other people don't see. And we learn to sympathize with people because we see they're carrying a lot more than we realize. So his power to evoke an interior, a, a world of inner selves, the struggles that people have, particularly Hester and Dimsdale, shows us that there's more going on and we should take care. But it's not, it's not a statement, it's not a principle, it's a drama. We're living it so we can actually experience it. It's not a thought in our head, it's an actual experience. So one of the great themes of the work is reading. And that's signified in the title of the work itself. It's the Scarlet Letter. It's about a letter. In that sense, it focuses the whole theme. It's about the way the people read that letter. Because you know that everybody reads it in an, in an accusing, judgmental way. And the irony is that we, as we read, we see um, that um, Hester, this is one of the great truths, and it's where I want to go in an opening comment in a second. Um, it's one of the great truths of the novel. Hester undergoes a new birth because of her sin. We read those passages. I read that passage where she said she underwent a new birth. Because once you commit a sin, you become conscious of yourself in another way. It's like a new person is born. And if you take that, serious, that sin seriously, it actually opens a relationship with God. So one of the differences between Hester and the rest of the people is they go around acting like they're not in sin. So they're quick to condemn people. They're judging by outward appearances. Hester's not any longer. She carries a sin. 
Um, one of the great problems of a world is that, is that so often the, the people who create the biggest problems are the people who think they're sinless. They go around condemning people. They've got all these programs of how to change the world. The one thing you would hope that they would come to is some sense of their own sins because it would sort of moderate what they do. The same thing happens with Dimsdale. That Dims, we read those passages where Dimsdale is actually described as having a new sensitivity to people because of his own guilt. He's a priest. So, bef so before his fall, he had to be the minister aware that he had to be perfect. Flawless, without sin. Because according to his own beliefs, if he sinned, it would be evidence that he'd be among the damned. Is everybody following? So one of the things that Hawthorne is doing is showing us the way in which sin helps us introduce into what Melville and Hawthorne called the brotherhood of sin. I'll repeat it. Um, that our experience of sin makes it possible for us to identify with one another. Because by holding ourselves above sin, we think we're better than other people and we're quick to be judgmental. Um, to not bring a mercy or a love. Hawthorne is not saying enable, overlook sins, forget them, don't bring justice. He's not doing that. What he is showing is that the experience of sin helps enlarges a person's consciousness. He begins to see other people in a different way. Okay. Now, um, I, I wanted to go to two issues here before I turn to the text. Last week when we met, we, we looked at those um, passages in which um, Chillingworth was working on Dimsdale, remember, and he'd seen the sign. And it's in those scenes that Hawthorne describes, this is sort of stunning, Hawthorne describes him as becoming fiendish, evil. In the chapters following that, he actually uses that word, that the Chillingworth is becoming a fiend. And I want to just stop on this for a moment to underscore it. You know that in reading um, Moby Dick, we saw that one of the things that um, Melville was making us aware of is in the Protestant world, because um, people were um, believed to be um, predestined to damnation or salvation. If they were predestined to damnation, it meant that they were created evil. They weren't damned because of any choice they made in the world. They were damned before they were born. They didn't have a choice. If they were predestined to be damned, so they were evil innately before they were born, where did that evil come from? If God's the creator of the soul, and he made a soul that's evil innately, inherently, before it even does anything, it imputes an evil to God. And we saw all of those passages, remember where um, Ahab is talking about this intelligent malignity, this malice, this pasteboard mask that he has to break through, this evil in the world. He's grown up that way. If somebody grew up with a, uh, in a, under a Calvinistic belief, he'd believe that there's this inherent evil in the world because the belief of the Calvinist is the, the effects of the fall were complete. Man was depraved, utterly ruined. Those are Melville's, or uh, um, Milton's word. All lost, all corrupt, 
utterly ruined. So there's a quality to the modern mind that looks on the world as if it's inherently evil. It's horrible. It's ugly. There's a malice working in the world. A Catholic can never believe that. Never. We believe God made the world good. Everything is good. We saw it in um, Boethius. There is no bad fortune. There cannot be. God made nothing evil. Humans commit evil acts, but God is always trying to bring some good out of those evil. That's why Boethius says there is no bad fortune. God's always at work. He's a good God. So we're looking at two radically different ways of looking at the world. But one of the things we saw happening in Moby Dick is that um, once Ahab committed himself to that vengeance quest to get back at that whale, he enlisted Fadala, who is an image of an eastern evil. He's a man given to the belief that um, evil controls the world and it has the power to do things. That's Fadala's world. Ahab gives himself to Fadala and we saw their shadows intermingling. And there's that chapter that we read in which um, it's, um, Ahab sees himself as damned. Um, and it becomes clear that Ahab himself takes on a fiendish aspect. So in Ahab answering these doctrines, these Protestant doctrines, he takes on a fiendish aspect in himself to answer them. So in Moby Dick, we watch a man, a human being, taking on fiendish qualities. In Scarlet Letter, which is about romantic love, or the failings of it, with um, Dimsdale and Hester, we're watching a man. Now, it's outside of a religious world, it's not somebody within the religious world, it's a secularist, Chimelene does not believe in the Bible, he does not believe in God, he believes in human knowledge. There are those descriptions of him taking on the aspects of a fiend. Those are Hawthorne's descriptions of him. So in both works, we're watching men on the edge of the modern world actually becoming fiendish. Not because, not because God made anything evil. It's because of what human beings do in their response to human problems. Okay? Let me stop there. I want to make one further point, but I just, because that's a lot. Any comments on that or questions or... I'm trusting you all read the chapters in which Chillingsworth is described doing what he does and, and Hawthorne describes him as being fiendish. It really does. He, wa he wants to hurt him. He, he just wants to hurt him. He wants to get back. Is he poisoning him? Hmm? Is he poisoning him? I don't think so. But, I mean, spiritually... Spiritually, by what he's doing, but not physically with herbs or medicines or the stuff that Chillingworth works with, yeah. There is, well, there is something in there about him not collecting these herbs. And it was, yeah. what, is, what is he really... He refers to <laughs> yeah, what, yeah. And what is he doing? Yeah. Right. Well, but, but he, yeah, but it's interesting in, those, in the last couple of chapters of the section we're reading tonight, He's so clear, and it's just Hawthorne and Melville are really amazing men. 
It's so clear that he's aware that he started out good, that he was a good man. He says that in the meeting between him and Hester when she goes to him to, to tell him she's not going to hold herself to her vow. She wanted to protect um, Dimsdale, but now that she sees what Chillingworth is doing, she knows that what he's doing is evil, and she sees the effects on Dimsdale. So she tells him, I'm going to tell him what you're doing. It's in those two chapters that um, we get a glimpse of Chillingworth aware that he started out as a really good man. This is where I'm going. He started out as a good man, um, but he's aware that he's become evil. He knows it, and he wants to do it. Esther's description of him when he was walking away after they met on the road after she came out of the forest, and her description of him, how did I ever, ever? Yeah, right, 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 right. And, and also, the, how he yeah. bent over. Yeah, she can see it in his eyes, yeah. too. It's just, a, spiritually, it's a different man, yeah. Here's the, one of the questions, I mean, one of the comments that I wanted to make before we look at the text. One of the things that we're going to, and I want to underscore this, and it's, I think it's one of the reasons I want to show these violent movies. <laughs> um, one of the themes that Hawthorne is dealing with that we'll see explicitly, we've got a hint of it already in Dimsdale's confession episodes. Remember when he confesses to the congregation and admits that he's a sinner? In the next chapter, we didn't read it, but I want to look at that just briefly here. He goes up in the scaffold, and, and Hester and um, Pearl come along, and he invites them up, and he's with them. And he lets out, before he calls them up, he lets out this shriek. And the description of him is as if he has confessed to the world. And when somebody comes up, he hears himself confessing, but he realizes afterwards it was only in his imagination, that he really did not confess. So we've got two scenes that deal explicitly with confession. Um, and my question is, and I don't want to spend too much time on it because it sort of gets us out of the book, but it, it gets to our faith and I want to take a minute with it. What happens to a world when it loses the sacrament of confession? Hold on to that for just a second, okay? I want to elaborate on it. One of the things that Dimsdale or Hawthorne shows us in the next couple of chapters is when Hester and Dimsdale meet in the forest. Remember, before Dimsdale comes, Hester and Pearl are alone, and her and Pearl plays in the sun. She keeps chasing the sun, and the sun shines on her. And she makes a point of saying to her mother, "The sun doesn't shine on you." It's one of it, this stuff drives me nuts in Hawthorne, but it's his way of showing that she's fallen. Sun doesn't shine on her. And, but it's the way the narrative goes, and Pearl makes light of it. Um, so in those scenes, we see a mother and, and her daughter sporting, and Pearl is doing what she usually does, um, and the sun is shining. When Dimsdale comes and the two are together, it, Hawthorne makes it clear that they recommit their sin. And by that, I don't think it's made explicit that they have sexual intercourse. It's that the feelings they have for each other come out from behind the masks. So all the efforts they've made to, to deny it or control it or conceal it um, come to an end. And for a moment, they find a relief in being able to offer themselves again to come out. 
And when that happens, you know that Hester takes her letter off and throws it off. If I remember correctly, the sun comes out at that moment as if the sun approves. So what they're doing, in, and this is symbolically in what Hawthorne is doing, it goes to a, a major theme of the novel. What they're doing is perfectly appropriate in the natural world. The natural world approves. The sun approves. I think it's absolutely crucial to see that. Because what they're doing is in accord with nature. So Hawthorne's showing there's some good, this natural good. Okay? What happens when the two of them agree to run away and Hawthorne leaves the forest? Or sorry, Dimsdale. Do you remember what he does? Because it's major for the work. What does he do? He and Hester have decided they're going to run because they want to escape this oppression, the deceit, the lying, the, the inability to love another because they're in sin, they're held behind, you know, the Scarlet Letter and Dimsdale's reputation as a minister. He doesn't want to violate the congregation's trust in him. He wants to protect it. So the two of them are trapped in this world. I don't want to answer, I mean, I want to, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that chapter explicitly next week and deal with it. Should they run away? I don't want to deal with that. Right now I'm just saying, what does, what does Dimsdale do when he leaves the forest? After they make that decision, do you remember? Do you remember what he does with them? What did he do? I can't remember. Yeah. But I remember he was going to change his. He was going to be good in some manner. He was going to recognize each of these people some kind of goodness in them. But when it came to it, it didn't happen. Yeah. What happened? Does anybody remember? Bob, do you remember what happened? Can you give an example? Can you remember? One was the young lady that he met that really liked him. Adored him. Adored him. I can't remember what he said to her, but it basically blew her off. More than blew her. Yeah. Then she thought that she had done something wrong because of his attitude. So she and then she woke up the next morning having teary eyes because of something. There just here, I want everybody to put this together because it's really, it goes to one of the major themes of the novel. They just come out of the, the decision. He's leaving, going back. And they both, they both, they enter that free, I'm going to read the passage from Hawthorne. They enter that freedom of um, sort of an unsanctified world. They can go now and flee. And so they have the relief of coming out from under these burdens, you know, that the church has left them under. And he has three encounters with a minister, with this young girl, and an older, an older woman. I have to look at them. In every one of them, he does something sinister. He whispers something to the girl that is probably sexual. He offends the minister, says something to him. He makes three offenses. Um, what is Hawthorne showing us? Why does he do that? It can't be more conspicuous.
Why does he do that? In fact, to, to hit it home, he, 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 he does it three times. Dimsdale, when he comes out of the um, yeah. the forest, it's on. It's on. It's in chapter twenty. It's a, the minister in a maze. Um, for instance, he met one of his own deacons. The good old man addressed him with a paternal affection and patriarchal privilege, which his venerable age, his upright and holy character, his station in the church entitled him to use, and conjoined with this the deep, almost worshiping respect which the minister's professional and private claims alike demanded. Never was there a more beautiful example of how the majesty of age and wisdom may compute with the obeisance and respect enjoined upon it as from a lower social rank and inferior order of endowment towards a higher. Now during a conversation of some two or three moments between the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale and this excellent and hoary bearded deacon, it was only by the most careful self-control that the former could refrain from uttering certain blasphemous suggestions that rose into his mind respecting the communion supper. He absolutely trembled. Again, another, go down a few lines, again another incident of the same nature. Hurrying along the street, the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale encountered the eldest female member of his church, a most pious and exemplary old dame, poor widowed, lonely, with a heart as full as reminiscences about her dead husband and children and her dead friends long ago, as burial ground is full of storied gravestones. Yet all this, which would else have been such heavy sorrow, was made almost a solemn joy to her devout soul by religious consolation in the truths of scripture wherewith she had fed herself continually for more than 30 years. Since Mr. Demsdale had taken her in charge, the good grandma's chief earthly comfort, which unless it had been likewise a heavenly comfort, could have been none at all, was to meet her pastor, whether casually or of set purpose, and be refreshed with a word of warm, fragrant, hard-breathing, gospel truth from his beloved lips into her dulled but rapturously attentive ear. But on this occasion, up to the moment of putting his lips to the old woman's ear, Mr. Dimsdale, as the great enemy of souls would have it, could recall no text in scripture nor aught else except a brief pity and has then appeared to him unanswerable argument against the immortality of the soul. It's a blasphemy. I mean, is everybody following? He's denying that the soul is immortal. It takes away every scripture, if, if, if that were taken to be true. Again, a third instance. After parting from the old church member, he met the youngest sister of them all. It was a maiden newly. She loved him. She was fair and pure as a lily that had bloomed in paradise. The minister knew well that he was himself enshrining within the stainless sanctity of her heart, which hung its snowy curtain about his image. It's the way congregations worship priests. How could the pedophile thing have happened if it wasn't that people hold priests in such regard to let them, whatever it did to break a barrier that was transgressed in that moment, which hung its snowy curtains about his image, imparting 
to religion the warmth of love and to love a religious purity. Satan that afternoon has surely led the poor young girl away from her mother's side and thrown her into the pathway of this sorely tempted her, how should we say not, or rather say, this lost and desperate man. He whispers something in her ears. Before the minister had time to celebrate his victory over this last temptation, he was conscious of another impulse more ludicrous and almost as horrible. It was, we blush to tell it, it was to stop short in the road and teach some wicked words to a knot of, um, knot of little Puritans. What's Hawthorne doing? Why is he doing this? It's not just an isolated thing. He's making it a point because it happened several times. The nat remember the sunlight approves when she takes it off. They're in their natural condition. This was the condition in which they committed their sin. It, now, if, let me let me put it as starkly as I can. Some people are born with ex extraordinary gifts. They're really gifted people. They've got. I should. In fact, I may do Shakespeare's son at 94. I'll, I think I'll do it next week. Shakespeare's son. They that have the power to hurt and will do none. Some people. They could be a cellist, a musician, a basketball player, could be a priest, could be a teacher. Whatever it is, some people have un unusual gifts. Are those gifts sufficient in themselves, in their natural level, to resist sin? If the source of sin is Satan, and its, a, its origins are spiritual, of a higher order, can man's natural gifts, as great as they are, be sufficient to hold them off? No. Is everybody following? This, this, the whole of the action has been moving towards the reunion of Hester and Dimsdale. They meet in the forest. She takes off the scarlet. That, that is her badge of sin. Once a human being, because what, what's, you know, I said it a while ago, what's the great gift given to them earlier in the novel? Their awareness of their own sins. Because in that awareness, they enter into a fellowship with everybody else. What happens when somebody takes that badge away and acts like they're better than other people? Or that they don't need God? Particularly if they're gifted. Is everybody following? The most, the most gifted people would be particularly susceptible because they'd be the ones most likely to say, Need God? Are you kidding? Why give a thought to God if you're so talented? Is everybody following? This is a critical moment for Dimsdale. He comes out of the forest. The two have agreed together to, to flee. And I don't want to deal with that question. I want to deal with it next week. Well, can they flee? Can they really flee? But in this moment, what's important to see is that what happens to the natural man when he turns away, particularly a minister... Because one of the truths that Hawthorne has showed us up to that time is that both Hester and Dimsdale be, <laughs> put this, become better, if I can put it, this is the paradox of Christian, at the center of our faith. Both of them become better as human beings when they admit their sins. Remember Hawthorne's language, she, she underwent a new birth. She became conscious of herself. 
She can identify with other people. And it's when she does that that other people begin to identify with her. In fact, in the, in the readings for this week, they reach a point where they call our Hester. It's our Hester. They begin to love her because all that she does in charity for the poor, the injured, she's doing things other people won't. Why don't they? Why should they? They're not in sin. Everything she's done is to lower herself, to not put herself above the, of the people so she can begin to identify with them, and she does. She does all these works of mercy, and people love her. They begin to call her our Hester. So a town that began, began by condemning her begins to change. But at this point in the novel, when the two of them are united in the forest, and in a sense they throw off their sin, we've got Dimsdale doing this. Three, I mean, it's like, it's like something in the natural man, if left to itself, can't be stopped. Evil is that great, without the help of grace. No matter how great our gifts are, maybe even more, the greater they are, we need help. Because spiritual sins are so much greater. We're watching, we're watching a minister. And by the way, it seems to me one of the reasons um, Chillingworth's evil is so much greater is because its object is a religious man. He doesn't believe in this stuff. He would have more incentive for bringing this man down. So the fiendishness in him is greater. It matches up in some ways with Ahab's. Let me stop. So to go back to my question, what happens to a community when it takes away the sacrament of confession? I'm really serious. What happens to, oh, are we off? Did it go? It did? Oh. Yep. In, in fact, in, yeah. What, what Ann said uh, in the before they meet in the forest, there's a discussion about parishioners coming to Dimsdale in his study and confessing their sins. Mm -hmm. But as like she said, he had no one to go to. Yeah. Here. Yep, 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 yep. And Mike, hold on to that, can you? Just, if, if, hold on for, sorry. I want to put this together again. Um, if you go back to the custom, you don't have to go because we've got different pages. If you go back to the custom house, remember in that description where Hawthorne is describing the importance of the romantic imagination? The effect that moonlight and firelight can have on the mind, that it can put things in shadow, and that it, it, so instead of people who are oriented in a business world and see things in terms of black and white or success or money, the romantic imagination can see things other people can't. So this is in the custom house. If the imaginative faculty refused to act at such an hour, it might well be deemed a hopeless case. Moonlight in a familiar room, falling so white upon the garp, carpet and showing all its figures so indistinctly, 
making every object so minutely visible, yet so unlike a morning or noontide visibility, is a medium the most suitable for a romance writer to get acquainted with his elusive guests. Um, all these details so completely seen are so spiritualized by the unusual light that they seem to lose their actual substance and become things of the intellect. You enter into an unfamiliar world, a romantic world. This is a larger problem and I don't want to get into it here. But the Romantic period, what's called the Romantic period in, in literature, it's, it's um, Shelley and Keats and Coleridge and Wordsworth, those men. All of those men are are identified with the Romantic period because they lived at a time when most men thought that science has co-opted reason. That science gave us a kind of knowledge that was incontrovertible. That was the field of reason. To re recover some ground because reason was lost to them, they made the imagination the highest faculty. All of them. That's why they're called Romantic poets. So um, instead of a thing being there objectively, um, what was there was a project, a, pro a projection of something from within the person, like moonlight or fire. So it's an image of something coming from within the person coloring the world outside. That's why Hawthorne could put that letter up to his breast in the custom house and have it fall. Even when other men would laugh at him. He's giving a, a romantic tale and showing us there are some things in the world that are extraordinary um, even though the scientific mind denies them. So the whole burden of the Custom House was to justify the romantic imagination. The letter was there, it was a part of history, it was the documents. Because otherwise people wouldn't believe him any more than they believe Melville. Is everybody following me? That's a huge subject and it's too big to go in here, but I, just to get the principle, is everybody following me? Remember when we met last, Dimsdale, Hawthorne was describing Dimsdale confessing to his congregation. Do you remember? Um, and you remember that um, that it described him as being a hypocrite because he lied by trying to pretend that he was being truthful. This is at the end of Interior of a Heart, it's chapter 11. I whom you behold in these black garments, I who ascend the dyke, I who in daily life you discern, I, 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 your pastor whom you so reverence and trust, am utterly a polluted and a lie. Everybody loved him more because they thought he was confessing. He did it again and again and again. Um, on the next to the last page, they little guessed what deadly purport lurked in those self-condemning words. The godly youth, said they among themselves, he's a saint on earth. Alas, if he discerned such sinfulness in his own white soul, what horrid spectacle would behold in thine or mine? The minister well knew, subtle, but remorseless hypocrite that he was. He added one more sin to the sin of the committee because he was being hypocritical. What happens in the, in the minister's vigil? He climbs up on the scaffolding in nighttime, Nobody can see him, and yet he lets out this scream as if he's confessing, and felt he confessed. He even talked, he even talked with somebody, remember, um, when they came along, this is halfway through the minister's vigil, good heavens, had Mr. Dimsdale actually spoken. For one instant he believed that these words had actually passed his lips, but they were uttered only within his imagination. 
people went into the, his office and confessed. I go back to my question. I know this is sort of outside the book, but it relates very much to a problem that Hawthorne had to face. Because I've been asserting, Hawthorne's being critical of this Protestant world. He's turning against it because in some ways it's inhuman. It's inhuman. But he can't go to the Catholic world, his daughter will, because he still thinks of it as a corrupt world. But we're watching this man go back and bring a spirit of charity to this world that it didn't have. And what we're seeing in these chapters is the sacraments are gone. And one of the crucial ones that's gone is confession. Now, put that in context. These people go to him and confess. My, I want to go back to my question. What happens to a people when they lose the sacrament of confession? I want to answer that in terms of the, first of all, in terms of the novel. But just stay there if you want to broaden it afterwards. But just in terms of the novel, what happens to people, a community, if you take away, in the novel, if you take away the sacrament of confession? Serious question. Not in our mind, in the novel. I'll just stay in the book. What do we see? It's a confession. I'm, I'm not assuming anything. Right now, I'm asking a question. So the two, just to be clear, what are the two options if you take confession away? You either deny that you have it because the, the burden is unbearable, that you don't, that, that is, according to Calvin, you're among the predestined saved. You're above it. You don't need, if you're among the predestined, you don't need it. Because remember, Calvin said, it's imputed. Justice is imputed. It doesn't matter what you do, you keep sinning. This is Calvin, strictly. You can keep sinning. God's will is irresistible. You're going to be saved anyway. So why, why would you need it? So either you're going to be above it, you don't need it, or if you're sensitive and carry it, like Dimsdale, you're going to be, Anne's words, you're going to be eaten alive by it. So everybody following. So it leaves people in this position of being really judgmental of accusing other people because they're above them, which is what we see through the whole novel, or you're undone. And we're going to see both of those, ha although it's interesting to see when Hester returns, she becomes a sister of mercy. She actually begins to help people heal. Um, so she can bring something to these people to help them get out of that self-righteous attitude. Dimsdale dies. 
I think, I mean, my reading of that is because what does Hawthorne do with him? I mean, it's an interesting problem for the novel. If you're in that world and you, and you don't have the sacrament confession. And the other thing is, I mean, to go to my, I think that's where you're going, Mike. If they go in, if, what have we learned about confession here? It, does it have an objective reality? Is it real for Dimsdale in his sermon? Absolutely not. Is it real for Dimsdale on the staff scaffolding? Absolutely not. In both of those instances, he's in his imagination. He's not confessing. He's confessing to a congregation in appearance, and he knows in his soul he's not. It has no objective reality. And here's the, the point that I want. It's, this is really interesting. In the romantic imagination, if, if sola fidea is your guiding principle, faith alone, and what's in your head determines what's real, who's going to say otherwise? Luther took um, the transubstantiation and changed the consubstantiation. We all know that, right? Your faith made it real. It had no objective reality in itself. What made it real is the act of faith when you consumed it. If you didn't, you could throw it away. A Catholic can't do that because he believes that it's changed in substance. It's objectively real. So one of the interesting things, and Hawthorne's not going to explore it, but we see the implications of it everywhere. When those people went into the, in Dimsdale's office to confess, we don't know, he doesn't explore it. How much objective reality? What we see in two scenes involving Dimsdale, in the, in when he's giving his sermons, and on the scaffolding, he's confessing and there's no reality to what he's doing at all. Is everybody following the implications of this, Hawthorne doesn't explore them, but the implications for the novel are huge. Dimsdale's going to die. Hester's going to come back. She's carrying her sins. And she's going to be capable of doing things that other people can't because, she's, because of the things we've said about her. So Hawthorne is going back to a people who denied the sacraments. And we're watching... Um, it's interesting. Hawthorne's telling us a story about a woman and a priest, a minister, who undergo a change because of the sins that they have to bear when there are no sacraments to help them out of them. Dimsdale will die. We've got, I want to look at the end when he gives his speech at the end. We'll, we'll, we'll close on that next week. Hester's change. Dimsdale changes. Um, but we're watching how cruel Christians can be, how self-righteous and accusatory um, because they think they're better than other people. Um, what Hawthorne's doing is bringing a spirit of charity to dogmas that in some ways were inhuman. Is that clear? I don't, let me stop. Any questions or comments or... Hawthorne? Hawthorne? No. Yeah. He had nothing, you know, he kept talking about it, all these things. The action of the whole novel, that he didn't really approve of this society, this Puritanism that made each other up. 
Yeah, I think he does an amazing job. I, and I think the re because he could have he could have left us in the beginning where the for the you know the four hags were condemning Hester and but he didn't. He he's got too good a heart. He he helped. He 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 created a drama. He told a drama in which two people who were condemned by this world um, grow in love because of the sins they carry. And um, it, I've, I've got some other, I've still got questions to ask, but we have to wait to go to the end. But, you know, what does Hawthorne do with romantic love? Hester and Dimsdale don't come together again. He's going to die. So we don't see a man and a woman coming together. But what we do see in the forest scene when you know they take off the when she takes off the letter is that they seem to win a freedom they're released from these but when they are and they're returned to their natural selves well what we see is what I said earlier that, that the natural man is not sufficient in it in himself to answer sins that um, I think what he does is amazing. What he and Hawthorne, or what Melville did during the 19th century crisis of Christianity, when Christianity is disappearing, you know, that what they did is nothing short of amazing. But the romantic part, because the book basically has a happy ending. Call that a happy ending? With Melville? Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. One of the one of the you've heard me say this before. One of the things I don't like about sentimental romances in the modern world because so much Hollywood stuff is either re, they either go off the edge in violence or like sentimentality is that in romantic comedies the love that the couple comes to at the end has no cost. It comes too cheaply. It just, it, it's just, it's cheap, it's, what, it's sentimental. It, they're asking us to feel something when there's no cost to it. When we get to the end of Scarlet Letter, there's no way you can't feel the cost, what it's meant to Pearl or Hester or Dimstown, because the cost has been great. Go ahead and comment. What are your good? We know that she is the product of this illicit romance. Yeah. And I'm sure that 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 factors into that somewhat. You know, is she a little thing? Is she a sweet child and that sort of thing? I just I've always thought of Pearl as a strange little girl, and I'm just kind of wanting to know more about what. Let me, let me ask this of you, and anybody else can jump in here. How, when you put the novel together as a whole, how would you characterize Hawthorne's presentation of her? How would you describe the complexity of, when you put everything he does with her together, what do you come away with? How would you describe that? Um, 
Well, you know, when she's a little bitty and she talks about the the black man and, and that sort of thing, uh, you know, it's like is she reflecting their attitude toward the sinful nature that this child has been produced that maybe has a little bit of a dark side. But then her mother adores her and she's a very natural child in terms of she loves playing in nature. Yeah. I just wondered if I'm reading more into it than he intended, but I don't think so. Yeah. She's very bright. She's yes, all white. Yes. You know, when, when, she, when she came up to Chile, not Chile, but Sam Jail, why didn't he hug me today? Yeah. Uh, why can't I kiss him today? Hold hands with him today. Yeah. So. Just a couple of comments quickly because we're time up, but just a couple. One of the things we can't forget in what Hawthorne done is that he treats her in accord with the way he's treating everybody in that Puritan mindset. Because everybody in that Puritan, raised under Calvin, sees things in terms of black-white signs. Everything's a sign of something else. Scarlet letter is a sign. He constantly un underscores the fact that she's a sign. She's a symbol of the illicit nature of their love. So in one sense, she embodies, she is the embodiment of evil. Um, she embodies, there's no question, I mean, she just does. But she has all, the, and, and remember, she has all those natural qualities, but we know Hawthorne's sense of the natural man, the natural man by himself is full of mischief. She has all these natural, she's lively, she's, and there's something innocent in her honesty. So when she looks to her mother and says, um, have you gone into the dark forest? Or do you know the dark man? Or says to Dimsdale, will you hug me tomorrow in the daylight? She has this uncanny sense of sin and I would say, I'm going to generalize, and you guys can jump on me on this if you like. It seems to me that all, all of us when we're kids, even, even if we you know, lose our memory of it as we age, I think most of us are, are aware of the sins of our parents long before we can identify them or articulate them. There's a sense that something's wrong. We get drift of it, wind of it, in little things that our parents do. So that we will say things, it won't be as maybe as precocious as you know, Pearl, but our kids have a sense that something's not right. So um, whatever, whatever is natural in the world that is good in itself, that kids feel a joy or a goodness, when something tarnishes that, when something does something, they're acutely sensitive to it. So I think kids have an acute sensitivity to wrongs when they're um, younger. And I think the way Hawthorne presents her shows that. You know, and all the questions she puts to her mom when her mom, when her mother finally says, get away, I, you know, stop troubling me. Because she's pressing questions that her mother can't, how'd she put it in the, in the forest? Um, she's asking if she and Dibsdale did something wrong or where did she come from or what her nature is and she can't go there. So there's a kind of natural precocity to some kids and if parents are trying to protect appearances, and shy away from being truthful, kids are going to see through that. So Pearl's an interesting character in that sense because she reveals the sins of the parents. She's not old, she's not been formed by these customs. 
have formed the, pe the social mores of the people. She's outside of those. Both of them live on the, on the boundaries of the world. She's not formed, so she has no qualms about throwing rocks at kids or doing things that other kids are being asked not to do. So she stands outside of that and can be honest about it in a way that other kids are not. So I think Hawthorne is, re is re again, revealing something about our sinful nature through her, but also revealing this innate goodness, you know, that's active, they're guarding us, and sometimes can be hurtful, um, and that needs help. And it, it, from, as I read Pearl, it seems to me one of the, the one of the things I love about this work is, like Dimsdale and, and um, Hester, because of what she suffered, she, so she stands outside of that. The problem with that other world is they don't admit sin, so they're not going to suffer anything. One of the wonders about Pearl is she's suffered. She, it just went. She's learned so that when she gets older as a woman, she's going to be, bring a maturity to what she does that these other people don't. Sorry, Doc. Except Hawthorne makes a real point of saying that um, she, has, she has never known hurt. Um, but she's so bright, she's so exuberant. Um, her heart has not ever been hurt. And um, it's not until Dimsdale dies. And then it says, now her heart has been hurt and she will grow up a human being. Yeah. See, yeah, and, and, yeah, and my response to that is verbally he says that. But throughout the whole novel, we're made to feel that she's aware of all these other things that she can't answer, and all of them contain wounds. She's a symbol, people look down on her, the kids scort her, they want to take her away. There's a lot of wounding things going on that she grows up under. Um, you know, the, the, I mean, it, it, she, and it's interesting that towards the end of the novel, before Dimsdale and Hester meet, Hawthorne describes Hester as being almost completely impersonal that she didn't have a heart that could feel anymore so that when she took off the scarlet letter it was like a relief that she could love again because what she and, what she and Dimsdale and Pearl face is that because of the cruelties of this world and the way they're made outcasts um, um, that there's a sort of quality defiance or something impersonal they can't allow themselves to feel very much because they they they'd like Dimsdale, they'd get eaten up. So um, those three characters bear wounds. And it seems to me one of the beauties of what Hawthorne does through the novel is that because of them, more and more of the other people are encouraged to come out from that black-white thing. More women turn to her. Pearl is going to grow up a woman capable of loving. You know, um, Hawthorne and Melville were not romantic in the sense that they sentimentalized sin or wanted to blow it off or dismiss it or, or say that you were bad. If you, you know, they have such a wonderful sense of the way in which sin can actually make us more human and draw us closer to God. You know, so. Any last thoughts before we stop? I want to look at the four scene more closely when we meet and I want to, so next week I'm just going to start with the four scene. I want to look at the exchanges 
Hawthorne's use of the sun, the moment when Hester takes off the scarlet letter and throws it off. Um, and I want to look at Dimsdale's um, inauguration speech. And remember, the novel, <laughs> the novel ends in an inauguration speech. It's a new order. And Dimsdale is the one giving it. So if we're looking at a founding generation, think about the importance of that inaugural address and what Dimsdale does in that moment. My, my reading is that this is a refounding that Hawthorne is showing through him as a poet. Um, he's bringing to something that, of that founding that that generation didn't because you know 20, 30 years after this, the witch trials took place. And handful, loads of people, mostly women, um, were killed. So remember the custom, as he said, he felt ashamed of his ancestors, he felt a guilt for their crimes, he wanted to do something to redeem what they did. So he's telling us a story. Would you describe what he's doing, even with the hags in the beginning, as uncharitable? Or is he being just and charitable in what he's doing as a poet? Don't answer that. <laughs> we'll save it for him. What, what's our final appraisal of the Scarlet Letter? What is Hawthorne doing? Is this just a narcotic? <laughs> is this a novel about clergy abuse? By the way, I was, this is one of the. I, I, there was somebody who wrote. There's somebody who wrote an article. One of the parishioners, because I, I started this at St. Francis, came up to me with a and, with a cutout article from the um, Dallas Morning News. Um, a woman who was a minister had written a lengthy article saying that when she was younger, she thought the Scarlet Letter was about um, adultery. But now that she's older, she saw the error of her ways. It was really about clergy abuse. <laughs> I don't use, I, I never write articles, but I was so angry. So angry at that, because I think this is an extraordinary book. It is not about clergy abuse. Um, it's about a lot of other th things, but not that. Anyway, next week, the foreseen and Dimsdale's inaugural address. What's, what is it the, that Hawthorne finally leaves us in this novel? Moby Dick in Scarlet Letter come out of that crisis in Christianity. That Christianity is in a crisis with a scientific way of reading the world. Chillingworth is, is bringing that scientific way. We saw it in Moby Dick, now we're seeing it here. What's their answer? What are, what are, what are they giving us in these two books? Now, in this case, um, Scarlet Letter, okay? So we'll finish Scarlet Letter next week and I'll offer some brief thoughts on Brothers Karamazov and we'll take a break afterwards. Okay.